Okay, let's go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We are looking at the, the negative aspects of the one another passages, the, the commands of what not to do with one another. And this one is a common theme throughout Scripture, common problem throughout Scripture, universal problem throughout all of our lives, and that is the issue of lying. And so the specific command is very simple. Do not lie to one another. We could just leave it there and go home. That's the command. Now let's just practice it, right? But this is something that requires some effort as we look at it this evening, and we certainly cannot look at all the relevant passages to the issue of lying in Scripture because it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden and continues on all the way through. Well, what does it mean to lie? False statements about someone else or something. Uh, it could be to mislead or to deceive. We can do this actively by positively lying to someone about something or something uh, or, or of someone else. And that's very intentional when we lie in that manner. If we have some sort of intent when we lie. Uh, but lying can also find its way in, in, in us in, in ways that we might not think of. Maybe by not speaking the truth when opportunity rises in the midst of a lie. Uh, maybe not correcting it. Maybe even it can arise by just simply twisting a person's words just ever so slightly um, to have an outcome that we desire, or maybe it's just exaggerating. You know, oftentimes, we, it's acceptable to exaggerate. Have we ever examined the idea of exaggeration through the lens of Scripture? By the way, the Puritans would have saw um, exaggeration for the purpose of humor as breaking the command of lying. Now, you think about how we do that. Um, but they were very serious on it. Lies occur for a purpose. And that's to mislead, to deceive for this possible outcome that we want, or maybe to hide guilt for something. Some people lie because they're habitual liars. Maybe you've met someone like that, that they just lie about everything, and there seems to be no intended purpose behind it. And I've, I've known people like that. Now, it's interesting here, when you look at verse 5 all the way through verse 10, Paul is instructing us, and what he does, he says, you put these things away, and he gives you a list of things. But it's interesting, when he does this, he separates the issue of lying and issues another command with it, separating it. You'll notice... How in verse 8, he says, put these things away. Verse 9, after a long list, he then specifically issues this command, do not lie. And so it's separated by its own negation in the text for the purpose of emphasizing the issue of lying. So, we know in our human experience, even know 
sadly, that within the church that this could be a prevalent issue. And the issue of lying oftentimes is tied to what other issue? It's not the same, but they're directly related to it. Gossip. So often, lying emerges in some form. Let me just say it as it is, some hideous form through gossip. Now, it's interesting, when you look at the passage, it can actually be translated two ways. A lot of times, a, a, um, a Greek sentence can be translated various, in various ways and still be grammatically correct. And one of the ways could be stop lying to one another. The other way is the way it is translated, which is basically saying never lie to one another. And so it's very likely that it's the way it's translated in do not lie to one another is the correct way to look at it because it would be odd for Paul to be telling them after he has said all of these things that are theirs in Christ that he would say, now stop doing this. It seems that he's saying, don't ever do this. Don't ever start doing this. Do not lie against one another. But... You could also say, if it's ever present in the church, what must you do? Stop lying. Stop lying. We must never start. Now, one of the reasons it, lying is such a, a big issue and where it, it's the most pernicious in, in the New Testament, in my opinion, is that of false teachers. How does Paul deal with false teachers? Does he handle them nicely? No, he has very strong language for false teachers. And false teachers, as I said, is the most pernicious form of lying, which is condemned throughout the Scriptures. Or if you look at the prophets, they have said things that I did not put in their mouth. They will be judged for this. But false teachers specifically lie about the goodness of, and mercy of God. They specifically lie about the character of God. Whether it was the Judaizers, or whether it was the false prophets, they lied concerning the character of God. So the one place that we can never tolerate, not only can we not tolerate lying with one another, we also cannot tolerate that of false teachers. Let that sink in. If you look at a lot of what is... Uh, accepted in mainline evangelicalism as being okay because it encouraged someone is actually the propagation of false teachers. And so we have to be very careful about what we allow on our bookshelf, let's say, or what we allow or recommend to others because we never want to promote false teachers. And any of the false teachers uh, that I have in my library, um, they have the, this, this book is marked for, as heresy. I, someone gave me that stamp. And so when I die and you go through my library to pick it out and you go, why did he read this? Well, you'll see that it's marked for the burn pile. And so it's not something I embraced. But I want, to, I want to consider some things about lying just in general. Is lying is part of the old nature. And that is that it is part of the nature we inherit in Adam. That is the old man, but if we are in Christ, we are the new man. 
And Christ says, I am the truth. This is why after he says, do not lie, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So as you are born in Adam by natural birth, your natural practice is that of lying. But when you come to Christ, because now uh, you are endowed by the Holy Spirit or indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that is no longer a character of your life. And that's why he says you need to put on the new self. But you look at verse 5, where it describes the old nature. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them. In other words, there's this distinction that is made, that when you come to Christ, these ways that characterized your life before Christ, your life in Adam, well, now that you're in Christ, you have a new life. You're in Christ. You're covered by Christ. You have His righteousness. And His righteousness by the Spirit works through you. So these things no longer characterize you. So therefore, he says in verse 5, put them to death. In verse 8, he says, But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. This is where he gives the command. Do not lie to one another. So you look at that, that, that whole list of stuff that we would see as these horrible, sinful things that existed in our life before Christ, and then he specifically pinpoints with a negative command all by itself after that list, don't lie. But yet, lying is so prevalent in all the various ways that we started off with. I'm not sure if lying is dealt with in Jerry Bridges' Respectable Sins, is it? I wouldn't be surprised if he deals with that. He deals with gossip in there, but uh, it, it seems to be that it's one of those sins that, eh, okay, we allow it. And, and I'm not talking about big big lies. I'm talking about just our everyday little partial truths that those are the things that tend to be accepted by people rather than saying, no, we shouldn't, we shouldn't go there. Lying is something we have to understand about it. This is what makes it so dangerous. Lying is a sin that's social. It's a social sin. Whether it's just between you and another person, or if you were in my position and you lie to a group of people. Either way, it's a social sin. It's something that is committed directly against others. If lying is about someone else, that's a direct sin against the person to whom was lied. But if lying wasn't necessarily about someone else, but it was a lie about something, some sort of lie about something that we might think, oh, that was harmless, actually it's not because the person that's hearing that lie now is going to act on the basis of what you just told them. So that lie uh, even if it's not about someone else, it still affects the person that's hearing that lie. 
It makes them susceptible to repeating something that is not true. So a lie is social. A lie always involves someone else. And in the form of gossip, the one who entertains the lie, this is where we don't like, we know that lying in gossip is wrong and it is sinful, but here's how we end it, is that you have to actually listen to it. And if you've listened to it, you have now partaken in that act of sin. Think about it. We don't like to think that. I just listened to it, but actually, if we are involved with the gossip and that we've become guilty, Vilma Sabraco, who was a, a Puritan, he makes these following points about the hearer, and I just want to share them with you, and I reworded them in my in, in up-to-date language. But he says, you're guilty if inwardly delighting that his neighbor is depicted in a negative light. So think about it. You hear something about someone else in the church. You hear something about your neighbor that's not true or it's a form of gossip. But maybe there was issues you had with this person and that's why you're the hearer. You ever think about that? Someone might come to you and gossip about you because they know that you've had issues with this person. And then inwardly, maybe outwardly, you go, oh, that's, that's too bad. But inwardly showing delight, you've actually just involved yourself with it. Abrakel says this, he says, if curiosity gives opportunity for gossip, we've actually become guilty of the gossip itself. So if our curiosity and curiosity comes out by asking certain questions, probing certain questions, so that we can get some bit of information, we've just involved ourselves in the gossip, even though we're not the one directly gossiping. But we kind of are. He says this by smiling or nodding or saying things like, I want to hear more, stimulates the gossiper to engage in more gossip. Because you've encouraged them. And fourth, Abraco says this, if one does not speak out against gossip, but in silence, he allows it. So maybe those first three points don't apply to you, but you listen to it, you've just allowed it. So how could we kill it as we say, listen, this sounds like gossip. I can't be involved with that. And, and, and sometimes... Sometimes the person might go, gosh, I didn't mean it like that. I'm sorry, but you're right. And maybe the person gets mad at you. We have to recognize how it will manifest itself in subtle ways. And I think that those subtle ways are really brought out by a brockle that should cause us to think. The second thing about lying is not only is it part of our old nature, Let's really get down to it. Lying is a characteristic of Satan. Lying is a characteristic of Satan. Think about what Jesus says in John chapter 8. In verse 44, Jesus says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. So whereas Christ says, I am the truth, he says of Satan, there is no truth in him. 
When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And you think of the method of lying that Satan uses. He's one of those guys that uses like half-truths. Very subtly, go back to the garden, how he crept in there with Eve. He doesn't just come right out and make accusations against God in an obvious way. He does it very subtly. So he's a good liar. He's a very good liar. Reminds us of, of some politicians that are able to just continually lie without ever breaking character. All across history, I'm not, I'm not trying to pinpoint one. I'm just thinking there's people that are very subtle and good at lying. They're imitating Satan. They're imitating Satan. You think about the situation with Ananias and Sapphira, what it is that Peter says to him. He says, uh, in, when, when Ananias has lied, he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie. It was a satanic influence in Ananias and in Sapphira. And so, actually, when we think about lying, we're imitating Satan. We're actually... that's, That's the insanity of us thinking it would be okay to lie or into embrace lying because when we do that we're called to imitate Christ but rather than imitate Christ we're actually imitating Satan we're imitating the demonic world at that point when we lie we employ his tactics the reality is we're not called to imitate Satan we're called to imitate Christ so not only is lying part of the old nature as we saw in those first few verses Lying is a characteristic of Satan, but lying is something that is forbidden in the eternal moral law of God. It's something that has been written on upon our heart. That moral law of God the, summarized in the Ten Commandments is written on the heart of, of all. Um, but in Christ, we're able to desire as a promise of the new covenant and to actually love that law of God. But you see it in the Ten Commandments. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, a lot of times, commentators, rightly so, look at that in in the place of court of law as the primary target there, but also... That is in just living with people. We're not to lie. We're not to bear false witness. It's not something that is to be um, a part of us. It's not to be a characteristic of us. We are to shun that. In fact, Leviticus 19 verse 16 says, You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Why? Well, because they had to live with one another. Lying was sinful. Now, how are they supposed to live in a covenant community if lying is allowed? You can't do that. Now, the thing is, is that what we know is that if we lie, we know lying is wrong. Why do we know it's wrong? Because God has written it upon our heart. And so there's a conviction that comes with, with lying. 
And something interesting about just the, the Ten Commandments is oftentimes we think, well, the Ten Commandments were given at Sinai, and that's true, but the Ten Commandments actually predate that. They come with time because they're out of the moral character of God himself. That is why when Cain lies to God, it's viewed as sin. That predates Sinai. And so it's something that is from the very beginning that God embeds into us as human beings that he forbids this. And then he codifies that in his very word. And the reason why we can say this is something that flows from the very character of God, I mean, just beyond that I believe that the moral law does, but we see this stated in Scripture itself in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, in which it is impossible for God to lie. God can never act against his own holy perfect nature. He would cease being God. So therefore, it's impossible for God to act outside of His holy character. Now, what we see that's so important about the idea of lying in this covenant community that Israel is in is the connection that we have to justice and lying. Justice and lying are directly connected to, to one another. By the way, because we live in this time where you hear the word justice continually talked about, and not from a biblical point of view, it would be really wise of us as Christians to look at what does God actually say about justice? So that we can be informed in that, not only with how we live, but that we can also combat false ideologies that continually come up with the idea of social justice. Exodus 23, keep far from a false charge. Keep far from it. And do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. This very idea here ties these two ideas of justice and truth together. We are to be a people of truth. That's why it was required that there would be more than one witness. That's why also we read in Proverbs that if the first person that states his case seems right until the other one comes along and examines it, God has given us ways to deal with truth, to deal with lying, and to actually to determine whether someone is lying and try to get to the bottom of truth. God has given us the means for this. In Leviticus chapter 6, verse 3, we read of this, if anyone sins or commits a breach, we see that in verse 2, verse 3, or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, in any of all the things <clears throat> that the people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he took by oppression or deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely. He shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him in whom it belongs on the day he realizes. And so here, 
The idea of lying is directly connected to property. And so when we think about justice, taking someone else's property and then using lies and deceit for it, it's actually, that's not justice. So you think about where we see these accusations here. How do we handle accusations? How do we handle those type of things that come up? Because this is, always, this is dealing with accusations. False accusations make a victim of the accused, right? We must handle accusations with a desire and goal to learn the truth. That seems to be nearly impossible in our day and age. To actually, when there's an accusation come, to be about the truth rather than being about what our society is telling us to be empathetic. So you can show sympathy, kindness, and compassion to someone and still be about the truth. But when we just automatically accept certain things, we're, we're bypassing a major section of Scripture that deals with this very clearly. I want us to hear the warning that Scripture gives us in regards to uh, lying. Psalm 101, in uh, verse 7, No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before me. If you look at Proverbs, Proverbs has a few things to say about the idea of lying. We read this in verse chapter 6, verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue. Verse 19, a false witness who breathes out lies. God hates these things. God hates lying. It's not acceptable in his sight. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. You see, later on in verse 9, or before that, verse 19. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. In chapter 19, in verse 5, a false witness will not go unpunished. And he who breathes out lies will not escape. In verse 9, a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will perish. Let me ask you, does God take the issue of lying seriously? Seems pretty clear that he does. Listen to this prayer of the psalmist. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Oftentimes when I'm teaching kids, I will talk to them about whether they've done certain sins, and a lot of times they're like, no, I've never done that. (laughs) I always go, okay, well, now we're going to go to the issue of lying. (laughs) 
which they've already done at that point. But, it, but it's true that we all actually struggle with this in some form or another. This is our prayer. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. Now, we see that not only lying is part of the old nature, lying is a characteristic of Satan, lying is forbidden in, in God's moral law, but we also see this is that we are to, we are to kill lying in our life. What was the word that the Puritans used? We are to what? Mortify it. I am bound and determined to bring back mortification to our normal language. But look what he says. Put to death. Verse 8. He says, put it away. It's very clear that if there is that in us, in some form, we're, we're to kill it. We're to see that it's dead and that it's not resurrected. And so we have to be conscious of the fact that we are born liars and that in Christ we have been raised to walk in a newness of life and that in the power of His Spirit and by His grace, we kill it. We kill it, and that is God working in us. You see this statement of the reality of the Christian in the first three verses. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You you are different. You've been born again. Christ by His Spirit dwells in you. And He's sanctifying you. And so these things are no longer characteristic of who you are. And this is why Paul makes a big point in Colossians. He also does this in Ephesians. Is this constant statement of Kill the old self and put on the new self. My, my favorite actor, or one of my favorite actors in Hollywood is 91, still acting, still producing movies and directing movies. And he has this little phrase that I like to say, is how he keeps going is he never lets the old man in. That, that needs to be our motto, is we never let the old man in because the old man is dead. He's dead, he's been, he's been crushed on the cross. So we never let the old man in. So we are to kill sin. We are not to be liars, but rather, actually, we're to do the opposite of lying, and that is to promote truth. If you haven't read Calvin's exposition of the Ten Commandments, why haven't you? That's my question. It's short. But it's, it's tremendous work. It's very short. Where he just simply looks at the Ten Commandments and says, this is the negative aspect, but here's the inverse of it. Here's the positive aspect of it. Here's what you're supposed to do. 
And, and I think just reading a lot of Puritans is they were taking that same formula and just moving with it. But this is what he says. The positive, and I, this is me, I'll, I'll get to Calvin, He's, but I'm going to summarize it before I read him. The positive is to do all you can to protect your neighbor's good name. That's the positive. So we've been looking at, don't lie, we've seen the wickedness of lying, but let's think of it on the other end of us now, is you need to do all you can to protect your neighbor's good name. You have to protect it, you have to fight for that. So here's what Calvin says, he says, quote, Hence, the legitimate observance of this precept consists in employing the tongue in the maintenance of truth, so as... To promote both the good name and the prosperity of our neighbor. The equity of this is perfectly clear. For if a good name is more precious than riches, a man in being robbed of his good name is no less injured than if he were robbed of his goods. While in the latter case, false testimony is sometimes not less injurious than rapine committed by the hand. In other words, what he says is actually lying against someone does more harm than if you were to physically hurt them. Why is that? Well, because they can heal from a physical beating, but if you have tarnished their name, you don't get over that. You don't get over that at all. As soon as there's an accusation in the air, regardless of the truth of it or not, it ruins a person's reputation. So remember how lying impacts the person being lied about or to. And a lie against your neighbor can ruin them. It can spoil them even if the lie is to be found out. Let me just, let me just ask you, I'm not asking for your opinion of the actual outcome of his case, but what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of O.J. Simpson? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Did he, did he, did there, because something came up, but a court of law said he wasn't. Now, I'm not making a judgment on that. I have my, my own opinion. It's probably the same as yours. I'm saying, you can't now disassociate what he was accused of from the person. That's how accusations work. So when an accusation goes out about someone, even if later a court of law says, well, that wasn't right, or we say, no, that wasn't right, guess what? You can't disassociate that from that person anymore. That's the danger and harm that a lie about a person does. Is it damages their character and you forever reflect upon them. So here's the application when we think about the idea of lying. Meditate on the destructive nature of a lie. Meditate upon what it does to a person And if a good name is to be more valued than precious stones and jewelry, think about how a lie actually takes that away from a person. This brings up the question, are there situations where it's okay to lie to our neighbor? And I'm I'm not going to the midwife's scenario. I'm not going to the Rahab scenario. We've, we've, We've kind of dealt with that. Listen to what it says. 
Scripture says in Ephesians 4.15. Rather, speaking the truth in love. Sometimes truth hurts. But we need to do it in love. We are called. He says this in verse 25 of Ephesians 4. Therefore, having put away falsehood, that's that, that idea. Put it away, put on the new self, take off the old self, but put on the new self. So put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We're part of one another. So you, you can even look and, and compare this to the same situation that Israel was at in the wilderness and how they were to live with one another. And when they inherited the land and they were surrounded by enemies that hated them, how were they to live one, with one another? As they were to, to, they were to be about justice. They could not bear false witness, but they were actually to promote truth and to protect their neighbor's good name. Well, think about it this way. We're in the wilderness, friends. And we've got one another as a family. And Christ has established unity. We need to be about truth. We need to speak truth in love. And we must put to death. We must mortify lying. So, our goal then is not just that we don't lie. That's only half of the scenario. The other half is this, is we have to be about promoting truth with one another. So how do we combat lying? Be devoted to truth. Be devoted to truth and speaking truth in love, and you're able to combat lying that way. A love for truth expels the entertainment or active participation in that which is false. And so how do we, we combat that issue of lying is you fill your mind with God's word because God's word is truth. And if you're continually filling your mind with God's word, you're filling your mind continually with that which is true. Think about what Paul says in Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, so whatever is true, he says, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So again, it's, it's that constantly filling our mind with God's word and then reflecting upon it. Think about those things. Let those things soak into you. It would be really hard, <clears throat> or at least I think it would be really hard to be focusing in on the truth of God's word and then go out and lie. It would be two contradictory actions. And if you did that, I would believe that you would be instantly convicted of it <clears throat> and want to repent of it. We are to think about that which is true. The other thing is this, is that we must hate it. We're called to hate sin. Specifically, detest lying, knowing 
that lying does not come from God. Lying does not imitate God, but rather lying is satanic. Always put it in that perspective. Act on conviction when you're the listener. What do I mean by that? If you find yourself in a situation where someone is gossiping, or maybe a lie is coming out about someone, as the one that's listening, you need to put an end to it. And if you've never done that before, the first time will be frightening. You'll worry about the relationship with that person. But let me say this, is you actually be more concerned of your love for truth than you are of anything else. And you do that in love with your brother or sister. And guess what? They won't do it again. They won't do it again with you. They won't. Because they'll know you, you put a boundary in place. And that might be the means that actually helps them. You might be a big help to your neighbor if they're involved in that and you call it. But as we consider these things and we put these things into practice, this sets a culture of sanctification for our church. This is a means of us growing in holiness, to be about truth and to detest lying. So if we hear it and we confront it, again, likely we will not be needed to be confronted twice But what ends up happening usually is this, is you grow together. You grow because you confronted. They grow because they've been confronted. And you're able to walk away from it. And sanctification has happened in that. And it demonstrates that we're committed to unity. So if we confront it, what we're saying is we actually love the unity of the whole, even if it means that this uncomfortable confrontation may cause a division between me and this person. I'm committed to the unity that Christ bought with his blood. And we know that lying or gossip, slander, is actually destructive and the means that Satan will use to attack the church. And we say, we're not going to allow that satanic activity to happen here. Through that process, God is sanctifying us. Through that process, God is growing us. And that is our witness to a lost world, that when we say we follow Jesus, who is the truth, We actually mean it as the pillar and buttress of truth. That we don't accept anything but the truth. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the clarity that your word gives us on this issue. We pray for your help. For we know that we, in the old self, have that tendency. But we praise you that the old self has been put to death and that we have been risen in Christ to walk in a newness of life and we thank you that lying is not the unforgivable sin and that Christ takes our lies upon him upon the cross and died for liars such as us 
and that we have forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ, without which we, we would have no hope. We'd have no security or no assurance. We pray your grace and your help that we would be a church that delights in the truth, that thinks upon the truth, and that we would abhor any forms of falsehood. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.